How's 10.45? Jeez. I are sleepy at 9 and 10.45. I, I'm so honored to be with you this morning that I'm really, really excited that we get a chance to come and gather together again and open up God's Word, uh, that we might learn from it, be transformed by it, and that He might mold us into the people that He wants us to be. I'm really, really excited about this new series that we're starting today, this, this series, If This, Then That. We're gonna be studying through the book of Ephesians, and it's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Truth is, I like a lot of books in the Bible, but this one in particular, it's so practical. What Paul brings to those living in Ephesus at this point in time is so practical on how the gospel impacts our life day in and day out. First of all, quick shout out to the student row here in the front. Good to see you guys. Uh, it's practical on how it impacts the way we live each and every day. Here's why I'm so excited about this series. There's really a couple reasons. One is, um, after years of serving in the church, it, it still shocks me that there are many of us in the church who we believe this stuff to be true or we say we profess it to be true, but in the end, when it comes down to it, who Jesus is and what he's done has not actually translated into affecting the way that we live each and every day, the decisions that we make, the things that we do. The other problem is I've watched myself and I've been shocked so many times that as somebody who's a pastor, who opens up God's word often, who believes this stuff to be true, I still don't allow Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to actually affect me and fully embrace all the spiritual blessings that are available to us. So this morning, uh, I really want to uh, talk about all of the things that are available to us in Christ that are ours, that we can live into that become true, and because they are true, they affect us. I'm so glad this morning we had a chance to give these third graders their own Bibles to hold to their hands to see for themselves what God says about them and what is true about him, and may it transform their lives as well. So here's the thing this morning. We live most of our life day to day, uh, hour by hour, based upon what we believe to be true. They're, they're conditional kinds of things. We're directly affected by what we believe to be true. I would say that our lives are one big conditional statement. One big conditional statement. What I mean by conditional statement is uh, something that is a hypothesis. And if that hypothesis is true, then there's a certain kind of outcome that follows. It's, it's conditional. And it has an impact on how we live each and every day. If this, then that statements. If this hypothesis is true, it has an outcome. Uh, in the past 24 hours, I have had a few of these conditional statements that I've faced. And I want to share them with you and kind of show you how this affects our daily life. First, uh, one yesterday that I came across was this. If there are Cadbury eggs in the house, but I'm not even done, then I will eat them all. It's a struggle. Anybody else can relate to this? All my Cadbury lovers, good. Uh, the struggle is real. Um, here's another one. If my truck tells me that I'm out of gas, that I will see if I can get another 18 to 20 miles out of it, right? I like to live dangerously. How about this one? If I'm eating a hamburger or a cheeseburger, then I will have mayonnaise on it. Anybody? I got the same response at nine o'clock. Like, Ugh. I thought mayonnaise was like a normal thing. I don't know. Uh, if we run out of toilet, uh, paper, well, paper, paper towel or toilet paper in the house, then I'm going to the grocery store. And if you know anything about me and my past history, if I'm headed to the grocery store to buy paper towels, then it's definitely gonna be bounty based upon what my, my wife tells me to do. It's a long story. These conditional statements are real. They're true. But they're not the most meaningful conditional statements that we experience within our life. There's ones that are actually much more important, and these if-then scenarios are actually incredibly damaging if we don't respond to them correctly. I'll give you an example. If we don't feel loved and valued, then we will often try to fill that void through relationships, substances, and status. Or how about this? 
If, if we don't have purpose for our lives, then we will waste our days in meaningless endeavors. If we believe that we cannot truly be forgiven, then we will constantly live with shame and guilt. So these if-then statements, these conditional statements have a lot to do with how we live our life. And so this morning, I want to dive into this book of Ephesians because it is dedicated to showing us all that is true for us in our life through Christ Jesus, that it might have an impact in how we live. Uh, truth is that Paul, in 52 AD, spent two years in a place called Ephesus on part of his missionary journey. While he was there for two years, he actually helped start a community of believers, an early church there. You can read more about it in Acts chapter 19. It kind of gives you the whole story behind it all. But Ephesus was a very large and bustling city. It was the epicenter of all worship of the Greek and Roman gods. But because of Paul's work, there were many people there who began to do away with this old way of worship and way of living and instead embracing this risen Jesus. And so because of that, this early church started. But Paul then, a few years later, ends up imprisoned in a place called Rome. And as he's in prison, he's then writing this letter while he's in chains back to the church that he helped start years previous in this place called Ephesus. So as he writes to those in Ephesus, he makes these two basic movements throughout his letter. The letter can be split up in two halves, chapter one through three and then chapter four through six. Now the, the first section, the first movement, one through three, focuses on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the fact that he is the climax of all of human history, that he is indeed the son of God, and that his work on the cross has changed everything. Chapters one through chapter three, if. I would call that the if portion of the letter. And then chapters four through six, you might term the then portion of the letter. Because of all of this, then chapters four through six, he shows how the gospel story impacts our personal story, personally how it changes our communities, how it changes our world. And the two sections, chapters one through three and chapters four through six, they are joined together by a very important word, and the word is therefore. Everyone say, therefore. Therefore is a very important word. It means because of everything that was just shared, in light of all of this, therefore all of this, if, then, so I wanna be clear, Paul believes that everything he writes to the church in Ephesus is absolutely true about who Jesus is. This church believes that God's word is absolutely true about who Jesus is. I believe that what we are told within the scriptures about Jesus is absolutely true and trustworthy. And if it is, then it should transform the way that we live. If it's true, then it should impact each and every part of our life. So Paul begins this letter by greeting those he's writing to. We find out in the first three verses that he is the author of the book, he tells us that, and he's writing to those that are living in Ephesus. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter one, verse one through three. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, say it with me, in Christ. So Paul begins his letter as a letter of thanksgiving. 
He welcomes those he's writing to. He, he speaks blessing over them. And he's about to flesh out what all of this means in the coming six chapters. But in the first three verses, Paul gives us the condition of what the six chapters could possibly mean for us. As he greets them, he says it twice. In verse one, he says, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse three, Christ blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So notice something here. Paul wants his listeners to see, and for us to see this morning, that the key to everything he's about to share is about us being found in Christ. In Christ. It's a conditional statement. If, then, therefore. So in the Miller household, we have to use conditional statements oftentimes too, because to get my children to understand the implications of their action or inaction, sometimes we have to speak in these kinds of terms. I'll give you an example. Sometimes we might be heard in our yard saying, listen, everybody outside, we're getting in the van, and if you're going to come, then you better be in it too, right? Could be ice cream, something fun. If you're going, then you better be in the van. Or how about this one? You just might say to your children, listen, if you wanna go spend the night at your friend's house tomorrow, then you better be in the bed like right now, get some rest, you can be cranky the next day. These are conditional statements. If we are in Christ, then there are implications that come from that. Paul is offering to us a really clear way to determine if indeed these blessings he's about to tell us about actually describe us. If these blessings he's about to talk about actually are ours. And the condition is if we are in Christ. So, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the Greek word en, like E-N. And when you take that Greek word, you translate it into English, it actually is the word in, like I-N. You're welcome, have a great day. In, in. This is a prepositional kind of word. This, this word is what my mom taught me when I was a kid. Anywhere a mouse can go, like over, under, behind, through, all this kind of stuff. This word in is about position, This is a locational kind of word. So when Paul says, if you are in Christ, what he's talking about is proximity. I wanna be very, very clear this morning. When we place our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, when we believe the truth about what he's done for us, in an instant, our position changes. We go from being people who were once enemies of God to now becoming people who are friends of God. Our position changes. We are in Christ And with that position change, there's a response that we have properly in our life over and over and over again. The response is this, repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Our position has changed before God. We are now in Christ, and here's the proper response. You see, many of us, before Christ, we were living our life in this direction, doing whatever we want to do, making decisions on our own, in pursuit of sin, perhaps, all of this kind of thing. And when we repent, what it literally means is a 180-degree turn. We go like this. And no longer are we headed this direction, but now we're headed in an opposite direction. Every step of faith toward Jesus Christ in nearness to him. Our position changes. If we are in Christ, first and foremost, Paul believes it's about our position. And we are connected to him. And so in response to God's love, mercy, and his sacrifice, we live and step with him in relationship with him. So Paul says, in another way, in another letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he gives even more um, kind of understanding of this for us, if, then. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, is our word again, what do you know? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
The new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, all of our old ways of living are no longer applicable to us any longer. But now there is newness that has come. If we are in Christ, our position changes, our proximity changes. And as our position and proximity change, so do we. Our identity becomes different. It's like if you meet a new group of friends and you start spending a ton of time with them, all of a sudden you might find out some of their mannerisms become like your mannerisms. Like some of their language, hopefully helpful language, becomes your language. You know, the things they care about, all of a sudden you care about. As we get closer and closer to Christ, these are the kinds of transformative things that happen within us as well. We're no longer identified by all this old way of living, all these old things that we used to do, but instead newness has come and our identity has changed because of our position and our proximity to Christ as we are in Christ. Paul goes further to explain it even further in another letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter three, verse 12, here's what it says. Therefore, what do you know? Our word again, because of in light of everything that we've just said, Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. First and foremost, to be in Christ, it's about position, but it's also about posture. It's also about posture. So to be in Christ, Paul says, is to be people who clothe ourselves. The Greek word literally means to put on then, like you would a coat or a jacket. I just so happened to bring with me this morning my letter jacket from high school. Okay, so um, in one week from today, I'll be 40 years old. And so this jacket, it's been a while since I've had it on my body. But if you can see, as I put it on, it fits perfectly still. To be clear, that doesn't mean that I'm any more shape than I was then. It just means that the jacket was too big for me back in the day. So this jacket, though, when I would wear this in high school, man, I felt so good. Like I'd walk around town and show everybody my McCutcheon M on my chest. I had my name embroidered. On the back, we were sectional champs in 1999 in football. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just telling you the truth. I was a track athlete. It's on the back. We had all of this kind of stuff on this letter jacket. So when I wore it around, it meant something about who I was and what I was affiliated with. My posture mattered. The way I spoke to people, the way I carried myself, it would, it would be connected back to the place that I was from. And not only that, but connected to every other person that would wear a jacket just like this. So to be in Christ, it's about proximity. It's about location, but it's also, it's also about our posture. It's not just about identity, but it's also about action. To be in Christ means that we live in a certain way. Paul says it this way, we clothe ourselves, we put on then compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. By the way, that's not an exhaustive list. There are other ways that we can live this out. But it always points back to our position in Christ. And because of that, we live out this posture before God and before others. As we repent and walk in line with God, we draw near to Jesus. As we believe the truth about him, we actually live it out. Therefore, if all of this is true, it should have an impact on the way that we live. To be in Christ means then that all of our life happens in nearness to Christ and in light of Christ. All of our life, everything. So Paul gives us this if-then scenario. 
If we are in Christ, then what? Then what, Paul? After verse three, what are you gonna tell us? And Paul doesn't leave us hanging for long because starting in verse four, for the next 10 verses, he tells us about all of the spiritual blessings that are ours if we are found in Christ. So here's what he says, it's a little bit long. We'll, we'll break it down here in a second. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter one, verse four through 14. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed us in Christ to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will, in order that we were the first to put on our hope in Christ, might be the first to praise in his glory. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. To which everyone said, Whew. There are five vignettes that Paul goes through to show us the spiritual benefits that come to us as we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Christ. When we are found in him, here are the blessings that we receive. If we are in Christ, then we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are purposed, and we are sealed. I would imagine that if we were to actually believe these things to be true, if we actually believe that in Christ we are chosen, adopted, redeemed, purposed, and sealed, then it would drastically change the way that we live our life each and every day. Please hear me this morning. If you are someone who follows Jesus today, these things are true about you. They are true about you. Let that change the way that we live, the way we treat others, the way we see ourselves. So if you are in Christ, Paul first says, then you are chosen to be a blessing. You are chosen to be a blessing. Here's what he says in particular. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. We are chosen to be a blessing. Now this verbiage has been a topic of doctrinal debate for a very, very long time. I'm not going to try in two minutes to try to uh, settle this for all of us. Predestination versus free will, all this kind of thing. But I wanna speak to it for just a moment because it's important. When it comes to this kind of debate, it's usually coming back to a theological position about God being sovereign, meaning that he is in control of all things including the decisions that you and I make in our daily lives, because they're predestined by him. So a part of this concept has to do with a predestination that takes place at God's choosing ultimately for who would end up in heaven one day and who would live eternally separated from God. Within the Methodist church context, however, we believe that God is, in, is certainly sovereign. He has control over all things, but by his grace, he has imparted to us a portion of authority 
So as he has chosen us, he has done so that we might choose him back. The ability he has given us to be able to navigate this doesn't take away God's authority or power, but instead it accentuates it, that God would trust entrust to us the ability to make choice so that we might have real relationship and true love. Many scholars believe the reason that Paul uses this language in this letter in chapter one actually has to do with the way he's trying to connect what is blossoming within the early church back to what God did in Genesis 12 with a man named Abraham. As you might know, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, God starts the Jewish nation and he chooses a man named Abram who becomes Abraham. He chooses him and his family to be his holy people. But if you know anything about Genesis chapter 12, he chooses Abraham and he tells Abraham, I'm choosing you because you are going to become a blessing to the rest of the world. You see, God doesn't choose Abraham in exclusion of everyone else, but rather God chooses Abraham to be a conduit of blessing to the entire world. You see, when, when any Jewish mind or an early church mind hears this letter from Paul, they don't see this chosen nature as an elite privilege that's only afforded to them. They see this choosing as an opportunity and a responsibility to let other people know about this good news. Look how Paul says it in chapter one, verse 11 and 12. He says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything with conformity to his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Meaning, if we're the first to hear this good news and trust in it, that means there's others who are soon to follow. If you are chosen because you are in Christ, you are chosen to be a blessing. You are chosen to be a blessing. It's not an elitist mentality. Abraham was just the first to know about it and yet not in full. We might be the first to know about it, but we won't be the last. We're meant to share it with others. If you are chosen, you're chosen to share. I'll give you an example. Let's just say at my house, I had 20 children hanging out and playing, which is a horrible decision from the get-go. But let's just say they're all out there, running around in the yard and stuff. And if all of a sudden I hear the ice cream truck coming, you might hear me say to my son, Owen, Owen, come here, I need to tell you something. And Owen runs up, I'm like, listen, uh, do you hear that noise right now? The ice cream truck is coming. I've chosen you to let you know. But I've not chosen Owen so that none of the other 19 know about it. I've chosen Owen so that he would go and share it with every single other one. The ice cream is available. You see, if you are in Christ, you're chosen to be a blessing. You've been given the grace and the mercy of God, not because you are elite, but because God has chosen you to share it with those around you. If you are in Christ, then you are chosen by his grace so that you could choose him by your faith and in turn bless others with the good news. So Paul continues on. He says, first and foremost, if you are in Christ, then you are chosen to be a blessing. That should change the way that you live. But second, Paul goes on to say, not only are you chosen to be a blessing, but you are also adopted to be a part of the family of God. He said, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. We're adopted into this family of God. You see, behind this letter, Paul is trying to tell the Ephesians about a monumental shift that's taking place within the world. As the people of God, the way they understand who are the people of God is beginning to shift. You see, in the Old Testament, the people of God were simply the Jewish people, the chosen ones by God. 
But as the New Testament begins and Jesus does his work, all of a sudden, this good news is no longer segmented just to them. It goes out of Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way to here to Lexington, South Carolina. This good news is shared everywhere because God is opening up his family to individuals outside of Jewish heritage. In the Bible, they're known as Gentiles. That's probably in this room, you and me. Anyone who's outside of the Jewish heritage, they are being invited into God's big plan to rescue and redeem the world. And so God's family is expanding. He's adopting folks in. And if you are in Christ, you're adopted into God's great big family. One of the greatest blessings that I have at working at this church is the many different families at Mount Horeb who have made the decision to adopt children into their family. I would argue one of the greatest blessings that you have in being a part of this church is the many families in this church who have made the decision to adopt children into their family. And I realize that these children in these families may not have shared DNA with their parents here at Mount Horror, but I can tell you this, you would never, ever know it by the way these mothers smile at their children, by the way these fathers embrace their children, by the way these children argue and annoy their siblings. It's a true gift. It is wonderful to have so many generous families in our midst who are demonstrating for us what love, grace, compassion, and welcome looks like through the person of Jesus Christ. Our spiritual adoption that takes place by God's grace ensures that we have a father who will meet every need that we have. Our spiritual adoption in Christ ensures that we will receive an inheritance of resurrection and eternal life one day. And it also ensures that you and I now are brothers and sisters in Christ, to which some of you are like, oh, great. That's a joke. We are one big spiritual family as we're adopted in together. And here's the good news of this. Some of us in the room this morning, this is thrilling because we have an earthly family that is wonderful. So the idea of a heavenly one that's like that one, that's great. We were loved well, we were supported well, and so we embrace that idea wholeheartedly. But if we're honest, some of us in the room this morning, we didn't have the same experience. Like for some of us in the room, when it comes to family, it was a place of pain, a place of rejection. It was was a difficult place. And the good news from this is if you are in Christ, you now have this brand new family to show you what the love of a father or a mother actually feels like. So you can experience what supportive and gracious siblings are like. This is one reason why being found in Christ is such a powerful truth. You are grafted into the family, adopted by a heavenly father that can love you and heal you and fill you with joy. You are chosen to be a blessing and you are adopted into the family of God if you are found in Christ. Third, Paul says, if you are in Christ, then you are redeemed to be free. You're redeemed to be free. The Bible says that in him, we have redemption through his blood. Specifically, it says in him, we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus, because of the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us. Paul uses a very interesting word to describe the spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. It's the word redemption. It is the word apolutrosis in the Greek, and it literally means to be released based upon payment of ransom, or it literally means to be bought back. 
So the background behind this word, the reason Paul uses this word is because in the Greek world, in the Roman world, there were these Roman slave markets. As the Roman military would expand and would conquer this place and that place, there'd be individuals to be brought back then to be sold in these Roman slave markets in chains for individuals to come and be sold to the highest bidder to become slaves in that home. And so it would happen every once in a while, there'd be an individual who would come and would be the highest bidder, would pay the, the money, the ransom, to take this person off the auction block, they would release their chains, and the person would say to them, I have bought your freedom. You are free to go. It's called redemption, apolutrosis. So when Paul writes about this, he's grabbing this idea that many would understand to show us what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. By the shedding of his blood, we have been bought back. By the shedding of his blood, we have been ransomed. The debt that we owed has been paid, and we are now free to go. No chains attached to walk in freedom. This means that you and me and all of us, we don't have to live enslaved to sin any longer. If you, if you hear nothing today, hear this, that if you are found in Christ, the power of sin no longer has a hold on you. Paul wants to make it very clear. It is not a, a result of your hard work, but instead it's been lavished upon you as the grace of God. My father-in-law passed away a few years ago, but if anyone knew my father-in-law, Derwood Owens, he was a bit extra. Like everything that we did was over the top. He was a great cook. And so every breakfast, every dinner, every tailgate, it was like over the top like more than you could possibly ever think to be able to consume. I would go over there, he'd put together a plate for me, like, you want grits? I'm like, I don't really like grits. He would just slap grits on there, like going over the side, just overflowing. This word that Paul uses about God's grace, it's this kind of word. It's overflowing. It's lavished upon us. And through the redemption of his blood, we have been given freedom. It's piled high. It's more than you could ever consume, more than you could ever use and it's given to you if you are found in Christ. And so in Christ, God has lavished you with his grace. He has bought you back. So today, you don't have to live enslaved to sin any longer. That addiction doesn't have the last word and final say, Christ's blood does. That thing that you keep going back to over and over and over again doesn't have the last word and final say in your life, Jesus Christ's blood does. He's lavished upon it, on you by his grace. Let's live as if it were true. Paul continues with number four. He says, if you are in Christ, then you are purposed to live on purpose. He says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Paul tells us that in Christ, we are revealed this mystery of God's perfect will for us. Each one of us were knit together in our mother's womb. God wired us and designed us. And though sin broke that and made it dysfunctional, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection offers us the kind of power to be fully restored and fully equipped for the purposes for which we were originally made. My heart is often so broken within this community, oftentimes within our church, as I watch people who don't live with any kind of purpose bigger than themselves. They wake up in the morning, they eat breakfast, they go to their nine to five, they come home, they eat dinner, they go to sleep and they rinse and repeat the next day. And it's Groundhog Day every single day, the same thing over and over and over again. 
Can I just say that you were made for more than that? Every one of us. You were made for more than that. If you are in Christ, then you are purposed for a bigger purpose. You may flip hamburgers. You may teach children in school. You may work at a hospital. You may sell cars. You may go to school, but that is not your greatest purpose. You have a purpose that supersedes that. It's to be a witness to this kingdom of God that is busting on the scenes all around us. People without purpose are a little bit like Alice in the fairy tale Alice in Wonderland. In this famous story, Alice has this conversation with this Cheshire cat in this place called Wonderland. Alice asked, uh, would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? She's lost. And wisely, the Cheshire cat responds, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. It's a great question. She responds, I don't much care where. And so the cat responds, then it doesn't matter which way you go. See, for some of us, we don't have a vision for the kind of life that we wanna live in Christ. We don't have a greater purpose beyond the way that we live each and every day. And so because of that, it doesn't really matter what choices we make because any result will do. But as people who are in Christ with a purpose for our lives, we are revealed the mystery of God's intention for our lives. So every choice matters, every conversation matters, every moment with our spouse matters, every moment with our children matters. Our desks become mission fields and the mundane become meaningful when we experience the purpose for which we were born. And if we are in Christ, then we are purposed for a purpose. Lastly, in chapter one, we see Paul tell us one more thing. He says, if we are in Christ, then we are sealed to be faithful. He says, when you believed, you were marked with him by a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says that when you become a follower of Jesus, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit within you. When you place your faith and hope and trust in him, God literally takes up residence within you. Paul uses an interesting language by saying it's a deposit. God puts a deposit in you that's the initial investment that one day will have an eternal outcome. The Holy Spirit living in us. The Spirit of God is a seal and a sign that we are indeed God's. We are his possession. I remember when Jen and I first got engaged and I was trying to save money for a ring, which, geez, that took a lot of time. I was a middle school youth pastor here at Mount Horeb and I was like, really, that? So I kept putting money away and she just asked me the other day, like, how long did you have that ring after you bought it before you actually asked me? I'm like, I don't know, but it was way too long. Like, it was probably months, but it was like burning a hole in my pocket. So I remember when I finally got to kneel down on the beach at Tybee Island and ask her to marry me. I was so excited. I put the ring on her finger because I liked it, so I put a ring on it. And I, it was a seal and it was a sign to everybody else in the world that she was off limits, okay? Don't talk to her. Don't walk near her. I'm marrying her. And so the ring that was on her finger, in the end, though, was only as good as we were faithful to one another. My faithfulness towards her, her faithfulness towards me, this ring was a seal and a sign of something greater to come. But it came down to whether we'd be faithful to one another. In fact, when we said, I do at the altar, it still is about being faithful to one another, staying true to our end of the covenant, what we promise to do. Here's the good news today. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ. It lives and dwells inside of you. It's a seal and a sign to the rest of the world that you belong to God. 
And here's the best news of all. God is always faithful to us, amen? He's always faithful. He always holds up his end of the bargain, his end of the covenant to the very, very end. The question becomes simply this, will we stay faithful to our end? You see, it's interesting that within the scriptures, the end of this entire story culminates in this big wedding where Jesus Christ is the groom and we are the bride of Christ as the church. Now, for any guy in the room, like, I don't wanna be a bride of Christ, but it's, it's a bigger picture here. It's showing us that we are God's for all eternity and we are sealed by his Holy Spirit. It's a deposit to show us that in the end, we remain faithful and here's where this whole thing goes. It's this marriage for eternity. So this morning, Here's what I believe Paul is trying to communicate to us in the first chapter of Ephesians, that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He has done what he said he would do. Therefore, if that's true, then we must live out these things as true in our life, that we are chosen, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, we are purposed, and we are sealed. So here's the challenge today. As we leave here this morning, may we live as if this is true, that we believe it with our whole hearts. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are faithful to us, that because of Jesus's faithful work on the cross, because of his sacrifice, because those things are trustworthy, because they are true, God, our lives can be transformed. I, I pray, Father, for every person in this room that because we are chosen, that we would, we would live differently. Because we are adopted, we would live differently. Because we're redeemed, we would leave, live differently. We are purposed and we are sealed. I pray, God, that it would transform each and every day of our lives. God, the truth is we need you today. We can do nothing without you. So God, draw us closer to yourself. May we live our lives in Christ. May we trust it positionally. May we live it out in our posture to the world around us. God, we give you our lives today. We ask that you would do something amazing with it. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. And it's in your name that we pray and everyone together said, amen. I invite you to stand. This morning, this is good news, by the way. Everything we talked about this morning, as we are in Christ, this is good news. So this morning, I wanna invite you as we sing one more song, sing like it. May we lift our voices and worship God who has offered us all these spiritual blessings and they're ours. Let's worship together.